Rudy. Yes. Hey, I noticed your Facebook page. Ever since I've known you, has been this print symbol for your profile picture. I don't think it's ever changed. Yeah. Yeah. No. Uh, uh, I got a challenge for you. I'm going to okay. give you three Prince trivia questions. If you get any of them wrong, you have to change your profile picture. Oh, gosh, really? Yeah. Okay. Are you? Do you accept the terms? Yeah. Yeah? Okay. Uh, what city was yeah. Prince born in? City? Yeah. Uh, so it was Minnesota. Um, I would say my guess would be Minneapolis, Minnesota. That would be correct. Second question. Okay. Yes. How tall was Prince? Oh. <laughs> officially. Officially. So are we talking a sensible heel? Because No, we're not talking I'm heels. Just, we're talking his official height. Do I get close do I get like with if I'm within an inch? I'm gonna be an, fair. I'll give you I'll give you within an inch either way. I'm gonna say five three. Okay, it's five two. You are correct. Yes. You're on a roll. This is this is nerve wracking. I'm just gonna <laughs> tell you. Okay. Uh okay. The next question is uh what song did Prince play guitar on for Madonna? Um That's the last question. It, it, it's off of it's off of Madonna's one of the the early like first or second album. It's got like a weird name like love story or love. Is it love song? Okay, so I'm gonna give you another guess because you're you're thinking wrong. Okay, you're thinking of the song that they worked on together. Oh, they worked on love song together. Madonna has a song. Yeah. That Prince just plays the guitar on. <laughs> Why would you do this to me? <laughs> um, okay. You're, Wait a second. Say, you're, say, no, say. you're running out of time. I'll give you a clue. No, like a prayer. You were Is right. it like a prayer? Damn it, you were right. Rudy was right. I'm so sick of seeing that thing. <laughs> All right. It's the Roller Alderboro Vintage Baseball Podcast. Talking vintage baseball from coast to coast, border to border. Uh, we've been busy. And by we, I mean Rudy's been busy. <laughs> well, that's not true. I have to do tidbits. I have a job too. Uh, fresh off of our, fresh off of our visit to Flat Rock, Michigan, a couple weekends ago, uh, Rudy's been hard at work putting together videos. I believe we got one coming out very soon of you hearing this, if it's not already out when you hear this. Uh, so let me introduce him. He's 
He's working on the podcast. He's working his real job. He's fathering. He's busy. He And he still had time to get here and do this. The Shangri-La of the Lala's, Rudy Frias. Hi, Rudy. Oh, I, I won't live up to that introduction, but thank you. It's, it's so good to see your face. I feel like like we had that time off in between uh, Flat Rock and now. We haven't and, had time off. What are you talking well, about? Yeah, well, <laughs> We've had time I, off I from not being you. at Vintage yeah. Baseball. We have not had time yeah. off. Uh, it was an incredible event at Flat Rock. We got a lot of content out of there. It pushed us up to... And our, our guest is in right now, so he hears everything we're saying. I don't think he knows. I don't think he knows the power of this podcast, Rudy, as we were number 218 Apple Podcasts this week in uh, the baseball category. For an independent rinky-dink out-of-our-basements podcast, that's pretty damn good, don't you think? Oh, Absolutely, considering there are over, like, 6 million podcasts in the world. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, millions and millions of podcasts, and we're 218. Millions. Uh, okay. So, <laughs> uh, Rudy, without further ado, uh, you know, when we're doing these videos and, and doing other content than interviews, we miss a couple of weeks of interviews, and I miss it. And now we get to get back because our guest tonight knows so much baseball. Not only I have a feeling... I have a feeling. I said this before we hit record. He knows vintage baseball, but he knows he knows like the Brooklyn Dodgers era too and stuff like that. The man is an author. The man is a historian. The man is uh, on, on the Flemington Ball Club as our scorekeeper right now. Did he ever play vintage baseball? I don't know. And we're going to find out together. It's John Zinn joining us. John, how you doing? Okay, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, Rudy, first question, go. <laughs> John, such a pleasure to, to, to see you. I'm glad you joined us. Let's talk about the Nishonic Baseball Club of Flemington. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I want to hop right into our guest here uh, and find out when vintage baseball came into your life. How did you get connected with the Flemington Nishonic Baseball Club? The way that I got connected was um, was that um, back in, I guess it was 2007, I was in my last year of work getting ready to retire, and I saw something in the newspaper or somewhere uh, from Brad Shaw, who was the founder of the Nishanik, uh looking for somebody to become the team's scorekeeper and to learn how scorekeeping was done in the 1860s. It was something I've always enjoyed keeping score. I've always enjoyed baseball history. I thought this was a natural for me. The problem was I also saw that they played almost every weekend and working full time and every weekend wasn't something that was going to work for me. So I waited until after I retired. And then early in 2008, actually, the Nishanik tried to start a second team. And for two years, I was a scorekeeper for that team. That didn't work out. So in 2010, I became the Nishanik scorekeeper, and I've, I've been there ever since. Fantastic. The newspapers, for our listeners out there, used to be a thing that existed where <laughs> uh, information was passed back and forth, and people could connect through the newspaper. So. John, you're 
you said you're keeping you're keeping accurate score the way they did back in the 19th century. Is that the method that you're using? Yeah, I try to. Um, you know, there were there were multiple methods even back then, but I try to use the method used by Henry Chadwick, who is known as the father of baseball, not because he invented the game, but because he did so much to promote it. And he came up with his own scorekeeping system based uh, a lot on cricket because he was very familiar with cricket. Um, the major difference between his system and the modern system, today players are numbered by their position in the field. One is a pitcher. Okay, well, in Chadwick's system, the number one is assigned to the first player in the batting order. So the leadoff batter, regardless of what position he is, is number one. It sort of makes sense because people played multiple positions in those days. And it's also true in vintage baseball. So, you know, our number one hitter tends to be the fielder. But if he also goes behind the plate, he's still number one. Um, the only thing, there is one carryover from Chadwick's system to the modern system. And it's the, the use of the letter K as the symbol for strikeout. Uh, K is the last letter in the word struck. And that's where it comes from. And that's the only thing uh, that carries over today. I learned something new today. I had no idea that's where the K came from. That's fantastic. I told Was you. Was this um? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure John has forgot more about baseball than I will ever know. So. Possibly. Um, uh, I, I, <laughs> I did want to follow up with like, that's a task, like keeping score the way score was kept in the 19th century is not something that was readily available to like public knowledge, especially in like 2008. Um, I mean, we, we had the internet, but it wasn't like what it is now. Like how, how did you, how did you start out on this search? Was Brad able to like point you in a direction, connect you with individuals, or was this something you were always passionate about and that you picked up pretty quickly? Yeah, I, I, to my knowledge, we're the only team that uses the system. So there really wasn't anybody else to talk to. What Brad was able to do, there were um, facsimile reproductions of some of the guides from the period that included Chadwick's system. And so that was, uh, you know, that made it easier. Now, you know, in the, in the system, in, a, in the earliest system, the only thing you record are outs and runs. And so you don't record hits and things like that and bat and no batting average uh, and any of that kind of thing. The interesting thing was the first game literally I ever kept score of, um, you know, I'm sitting there thinking, well, there isn't much to this. I just have to keep track of the runs and outs. That's pretty easy. And then all of a sudden the first batter fouled the first tip pitch back on one bounce to the catcher and walked away from home plate and he was out. And then I realized there was a lot I had to pay attention to because I thought it was just a foul tip, you know, and the bat at bat goes on. And in fact, the at bat was over. Um, so you still have to pay attention. We have a gentleman here in the Midwest by the name of Tim Anstett. Hopefully I'm pronouncing his name right. He's a gentleman that also is uh, just a scorekeeper. He likes to travel around. I don't think he's official scorekeeper for a certain club. If he is, it would be the Royal Oak Wahoos of... Michigan, but he does travel around. He's going to be so excited because he listens to every, just about every episode. 
He's going to be so excited. We have a scorekeeper on, on the show tonight. <laughs> He's, I wouldn't be surprised if he contacts you. So there's, so there's uh, notes exchanged about uh, how he's doing things and how you're doing things. Do you find a lot of the East coast clubs you come across as the Nishanik club is in New Jersey? Do you uh, find all clubs out there have their own scorekeeper or do you have clubs that like here in the Midwest where you just got somebody that's on the club sitting at the end of the bench? Mostly. You know, there's clubs no, I, that think I think it's the latter. I can't, I can't think offhand of any team on the East Coast that I'm aware of who has someone who is just the scorekeeper. Um, what I see quite frequently is uh, on the other bench is seeing players pass the scorebook along, and they do it kind of on a rotating basis. Now, the other thing I'd say is, and I'm not criticizing, but for the most part, they use modern scorebook and they score in a modern system. Um, it's it's okay to criticize. Uh, I'm just, you know, it's just, we do you know, it Brad had this idea. Let's do it for historical accuracy. That's what got me involved in it. I'm, you know, I'm, and I'm glad to do it, but I don't, I don't see it being replicated very widely. Have you run across anything in your findings about keeping score about how all clubs are expected to have a separate scorekeeper? No, I, you know, Brad said, and I have no reason to doubt him that, as a rule, the scorekeeper was a player who wasn't playing in that game, an extra reserve player. Um, and so therefore the scorekeeper for the team anyway, was usually wearing a uniform. And for that reason, I wear a uniform, even though I, I don't play. That's fantastic. So you, did, you just let in, so many people off the hook. Rudy go. <laughs> he did. You, you gave him an out, but that's okay. Um, it's funny because Barrel Roller and I are coming off of an event that we mentioned earlier where uh, having a score, having your team have a scorekeeper would have been super beneficial because there were people batting out of order. There mm-hmm. was uh, uh, what everybody's like, what inning is it? What's the score? There were discrepancies anyways, but it's fantastic. It's interesting for me to know that it's usually a player left over uh, who, who isn't playing that day. I know, um, the only club that I can think on the top of my head currently right now that has their own scorekeepers would be the, the Ohio village muffins. And it is, they send out, you know, this is the match who's playing in the match. And then along with that, they go, this person who is a part of the muffins will be be the tally keeper for that day. Your turn to keep score. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's amazing. Um, Let me, can do you you said you don't I don't I think I heard it. Um do you compile end of the year stats for the club? Like do do people on the club come up to you and go, Hey, what's my aces to outs ratio or anything like that? No, you know, I did that a couple of times and the uh, one, at least one or two years. But the problem is the only statistics you're compiling are one. Yeah. And it's it's just not a lot to it. Now, the, the one statistic that um, we've gotten interested in is a clear score. Because in 1860, eight, late 1850s, early 1860s, the, the, the key goal, the, you know, the ultimate achievement for a, a batter or a striker was to earn a clear score for that day. Uh, and at the time, it wasn't it wasn't clear what the definition of a clear score meant. Did it mean that 
you scored a run because at the time the highest goal is to score a run every you know that's what you're evaluated on and so uh, did a clear score mean that you scored a run every time you were at bat or did it mean something else and it wasn't spelled out any place until finally um, what I did was there was a guide that gave the statistics for different teams in the I forget which year it was but it's in the early 1860s so showing how many clear scores the players had. And fortunately, the scorebooks, original scorebooks for the Atlantic Baseball Club of Brooklyn survived. They're in the Chad, in the Spalding Collection in the New York Public Library. And there was one player, I don't remember his name, but he earned one clear score in the entire season. So I went over to the New York Public Library. I got the scorebook, went to that season, and I went through it, started going through it game by game, and I finally found that the one game, and he had he did not score a run every time up. He just didn't make an out throughout the game. So that's what a clear score meant. Now the catch, you could get four hits and four times at bat, and if you get thrown out on the bases four times, that's four outs charged to you, and you don't have a clear score. You have a blank score. So it's kind of it's something we joke around a lot. You know, somebody has a clear score and then somebody forces, you know, the, the worst thing that can happen to you is you get a clear, you know, you've been up four times, you get a clear, have a clear score, you get a base hit in your last time up, you're on face on first base and somebody forces you at second. And that's an out charge to you and you lose your clear score. Uh, it happened to somebody on our team at Gettysburg and he was not, I uh, favorably disposed the guy who hit into the force play. So, uh, John, you mentioned how you wear full uniform while you're scorekeeping for Flemington, because uh, that's what was found out by uh, Brad in the historical documents. Uh, you can't tell us that there's never been a situation where you've played in a game. <laughs> well. I first got involved in vintage baseball. I was about, as the way I tell the story is, I was about 61 when I first got involved in vintage baseball. And I say with uncharacteristic wisdom, I decided I was too old to play. And so <laughs> I had never played in a game. And, you know, some of the guys on the Shannon would love to have me do that, but they're going to wait a long time. I'm 76 and a half now. They're going to wait a long time before they ever see that happen. So, so there's never been an instant where Flemington had eight players show up to the game and you're there in your uniform to keep score and you had to go in. That has not happened yet. I, you know, they may have, someone may have raised the possibility once or twice early on, but I've made it very clear that I'm not doing that. So uh, it doesn't, it doesn't even come into consideration today. What, what I hear when you say that, John, this is what I hear <laughs> is that you're creating a demand. So like <laughs> you're building up to this monumental moment that will shake the club to its core. When you say, you know what? It's going to be right. fire. Fire. Yeah. Yeah. Today's the day. Well, I don't know. It would take a lot. You know, I, I guess that, you know, that if, if I've thought about that, the way, if I, if I did it intentionally, what I would probably do is say that, I wanted to end my ball playing career the way I began it. I began it in third grade, trying out for the softball team when I was assigned to right, right field 
uh, and I'd want to end my career the same way. But uh, uh, I don't have any plans in that direction right we'll now. Keep our, you still got a lot of time. 67 years young. We're going to keep our fingers crossed. Yeah, seven, 76 years young or old. Oh, that's, yeah, that's what I meant. 76 yeah. and, a half, and, a, and a half. And a half. <laughs> and if I can have his 11 years back, that would be great. Uh, John, you graduated from Rutgers University, is that correct? That's correct. Go Big Ten. They weren't Big Ten back then, yes. but yes. they are now. Uh, how soon? Yes, they Okay, are. let me ask you this. How many books have you written? Five. Five. Okay, before I get on to the next questions, I'm going to get you to tell us a little bit. I'm going to name off one of your books, and you just give us a quick minute or two about what this book is about. All of these books, well, I see four of them on Amazon available. We'll probably run across the – oh, nope. All five are. Okay, here we go. The Mutinous Regiment, the 33rd New Jersey in the Civil War. Mutinous Regiment was my first book, and it's a regimental history um, of a New Jersey regiment in the Civil War, which is a regiment that, um, unlike most New Jersey regiments, served in what was known as the West. Uh, so they were in the Atlanta campaign, the March to the Sea, uh, and um, that, part of, uh, that part of the war. Okay, so if you go to Amazon and you look up that book, there's only two copies left, and you're going to want to get in on that before. Two lucky people, that's all. Uh, and then we have Charles Ebbets, the man behind the Dodgers and Brooklyn's beloved ballpark. Tell us about that one. Yeah, I've long been interested. In, I was. I grew up as a Brooklyn Dodger fan, Been long been interested in Brooklyn Dodger history. My son and I collaborated on two other books about the Dodgers, and it became clear to me that Charles Ebbets was a, an important figure in not just in Brooklyn Dodger history, but in baseball history and deserved a, a full length biography. Um, Ebbets worked for the Dodgers for uh, 47 years, uh, 25 of them as president and lead owner. So it's a, uh, it's a lot of material, uh, but I, I really felt that he needed a full length biography and uh, I'm glad to have written it. All right. There's only three copies left, but don't be, don't be afraid people. More on the way. Amazon has told me this. Not so much for the first one, though. There's only two left. Uh, the next book. Oh, where did it go? That is one of the ones that you referred to about your uh, collaborating with your son. That's Ebbets Field, Essays and Memories of Brooklyn's Historic Ballpark. Yeah, um, McFarlane and Company, who's published four of my five books, uh, started a series on historic ballparks. Um, and the first one was Forbes Field in Pittsburgh. And they were looking for somebody to do a book about Ebbets Field. Um, and this was right after we had finished our first book. So it was a natural for us. And uh, the book contains essays about the Dodgers, about Ebbets Field, rather. The first one is an essay about Charles Ebbets. And that's what really got me into the idea of the biography. It also includes... Um, memories of uh, players, both the Dodgers and other teams, and also of uh, famous fans or fans, you know, that like people like us, the uh, everyday fans, but also, you know, people like Doris Kearns Goodwin, 
and Robert Caro, the presidential uh, historian, which that interview uh, was was absolutely one of my, I'm a big admirer of him and interviewing him was one of my favorites. I also got to interview um, Carl Erskine, uh, the Dodger pitcher, uh, which was again, just a, uh, if you, do I have a moment to tell that story about interviewing oh, Carl yes. Please, yes. Please do. Okay. Um, the way it worked with the Dodger players was you sent a letter, uh, you wrote letters to them without an address and sent them to the Dodgers and they would forward them and the player could decide whether or not he or wanted, he or not wanted to uh, talk to you or not. So one, one, uh, I get a postcard from Carl Erskine saying, you, I'll be happy to talk to you. Please call me at this number. I call him at the number and I get a, uh, I get a, the message, the recorded message that says, I'm not available right now. End of message. No way to leave a message or anything like that. So I figured, okay, so early in the fall morning, I'll go outside and rake some leaves. I'm really out the door to ring, to rake leaves. The phone rings. Hi, it's Carl Erskine. I hear that you call. So we talked for about 45 minutes and he says, I've already, I think I've taken too much of your time. I said, there is no way that that's possible. <laughs> for another 15 minutes, we get off the phone. I'm going outside to rake leaves again, almost to the door. The phone rings. Hi, it's Carl Erskine. I forgot something. Oh, uh, so that was, you know, that, that interview was just priceless. Uh, and he's just what a gentleman. He is still alive. I think he may be like 97 now. Um, wow. John, are you, is it safe to say you've been a lifelong Dodgers fan? What happened was I grew up in northern New Jersey in the 19, in the 1950s. My parents were Dodger fans, so I became a Dodger fan. I only really followed them closely the last couple of years they were in Brooklyn. Then I followed them for about a decade when they went to the West Coast. Um, but then um, after a while, the distance got to be too much. And uh, my son is a Mets fan, so I kind of follow the Mets to do something with him. And uh, it's also it's National League Baseball in New York, which uh, means a lot to me. So. I'm sorry about being a Mets fan. Um, what I was going to ask you what the greatest moment in Dodger on the field history is, uh, but you only know up until about 10 years after they moved, what would you say it is? Well, I, I can tell you what my greatest moment was as a Dodger fan, uh, because I'm working on it, on something I've related to this right now. It's when the Dodgers swept the Yankees in the 1963 world series. Not just because they swept the Yankees. Oh, believe me, that meant a lot to me growing up in northern New Jersey. But also because uh, the 1962 uh, debacle where the Dodgers blew the pennant, they actually blew it twice, uh, was just awful. Uh, I was too young to remember 51. Um, and 63 was the year the Dodgers redeemed themselves. And nobody talks about 62 anymore because of what they did in 63. And um, but then not only beating the Yankees, but sweeping them. The only time the Yankees have ever been swept in the World Series uh, had to have been my, you know, my greatest moment as a Dodger fan. And I think it, it has to be one of the greatest moments in the history of the Dodgers. After that date, nobody talks about the Dodgers as the, you know, the also rans, the almost that it could have been that kind of thing. You know, it wiped that out forever. Well, that's because John. You're wrong. It's Kirk Gibson's home run. 
Okay, your next book is the major league. <laughs> I don't believe what I just saw. <laughs> the next book is the major league pennant races of 1916, the most maddening baseball melee. Melee? 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 Right. Melee? Melee. It's melee. Yeah. Melee? That's, um, that's my second book, my first collaboration with my son. Um, I was always interested. I got interested in baseball history at a very early age. And I was especially interested in the dead ball era, which runs from 1901 to 1919. And so after the Civil War book, I really wanted to do something about the dead ball era. And it was going to be about the Dodgers. And 1916 is the uh, the one time in that period where the Dodgers win the National League pennant. Uh, little did I know before I started the research that while there was a lot of great baseball played in the National League during the dead ball era, there are only two close pennant races. One is the epic 1908 season. The other is 1916. Um, and, and as I was working on it, there, there's, there's just far too much material here for me to cover both both leagues. My son had just graduated from college. So I said, do you have any interest in doing the American League? And he was all for that. And so, uh, you know, we worked, he worked, he did the American League. I did the National League. Um, and, you know, it was a lot of fun to work with him on that. And we've done the, that the Ebbets Field book came after that. So we've done two books together. That's, that's amazing. Like, I don't have that type of experience with my dad. Like, my dad uh, obviously got was kind of the integral part in us getting involved in vintage baseball, 19th century baseball. What, um, can you talk about a little bit about the, that dynamic of collaborating with your son? Like the, do either one of you take constructive criticism a certain way? (laughs) Was there ever a time when you're like, I'm right. And I'm your dad. it, It worked relatively smoothly on, again, he covered the American League. I covered the National League. So it was only when we got to the final product. And we actually worked pretty well collaboratively on it. He he lives – I live in northern New Jersey. He lives outside of Boston. Um, so uh, – and this was before Zoom. Uh, yeah. So, uh, you know, it was on the phone that we went over things. But it wasn't um, – you know, there were no real challenges about it. We were pretty much in agreement about most things. Fantastic. Uh, one more book, and that is A Cradle of the National Pastime, New Jersey Baseball. Right. Um, I was invited uh, to be the guest curator on a baseball exhibit at the Morvan Museum in Princeton. And um, we agreed that as part of uh, the exhibit uh, that I would be able to write a book about early New Jersey baseball because there was no a couple of things, but nothing really uh, had done a lot of research on it, so that I would write that book and they would publish it. And so it covers New Jersey baseball from 1855 to 1880. Um, and uh, and I enjoyed doing it. Um, it's uh, uh, you know I think it it documents uh, the important role New Jersey played in early baseball, which was a, a cradle like role. Uh, baseball wasn't invented in New Jersey. But it certainly uh, got a, a lot of lot of baseball first happened in New Jersey. What do you think about Justin Verlander and Max Scherzer coming to the Mets with their arms already toast? How do you feel about that, John? <laughs> well, you know, it seemed like a good idea. <laughs> you know, I mean, the thing the thing is this: that if if all you're looking for is five, you know, if the norm today in baseball, and I grew up 
a, a very different norm. If the norm in baseball is a pitcher, a starting pitcher is only going to start pitch five or six innings, then maybe it works. Uh, but uh, and so I guess it's worth a shot. But you know, I grew up in an era where pitchers finished what they started. So yeah, that never happens. Hey, we're going to take a couple minute break right here as we uh, as we do the Jonathan McLean news update. For this week, and we'll be we'll be right back with John. Saturday, November twenty fifth, eighteen fifty four. I'm Jonathan McLean, Dateline, New York. The Eagle Baseball Club has had a busy past few weeks. Two weeks ago, they defeated the Gotham Baseball Club twenty three to fifteen. Mister Gibbs bowled a victory for the Eagles. One week later, the Eagles beat the Knickerbockers by a score of twenty one to four. The write-up of the story can be found on page two of the New York Clipper, next to the article on pigeon shooting, and immediately below the articles on dog fighting and rat killing. In a return match the following week, the Knickerbockers put up a resilient contest, but lost by one run as the Eagles go three for three by beating the Knicks 22-21. to Today's news break has been brought to you by Mrs. Burns, female physician. She'll treat all diseases peculiar to the female sex. For just $1, she'll even throw in an all-vegetable female pill. Come have a seat in her special apparatus for female confinement. Dr. Seymour's galvanic abdominal supporters, because sitting on that rock isn't doing her back any good. I'm Jonathan McLean, and this has been your Roller Out the Barrel News Break. All right, Jonathan McLean, he never disappoints. Rudy, your thoughts? <laughs> oh, my gosh. Uh, I was, it was nice to hear a club that I used to play for, the Gotham Baseball Club, in, in, the, in the update. I was, that, I was like, oh, oh me, me, so me, Jonathan me, McLean, me, me, me. he's the best. Let's just say that. Uh, yeah, and it was good to see Jonathan McLean in Flat Rock. All right, back to John. John? Huh. When you were at Rutgers University, what were your studies? <laughs> Do we have to talk about that? <laughs> I was a business major at Rutgers. And did you do any writing while you were in college? No, no. no just, for, just for exams and things like that. I was very active. Uh, this may sound like heresy, but I was very active as a basketball manager at Rutgers. I was not a baseball manager. Um, How and I was good. Was... I was fortunate enough, fortunate enough to be on a uh, a great team that uh, shocked the world by uh, a couple of upsets in the NIT when the NIT mattered. So, uh, wow! See, we're finding this all about you. Uh, did you have a love for basketball before you had a love for baseball? No, no, no. Base. You know, I grew up in the fifties. Uh, baseball was the only sport. I mean, basketball and football and hockey existed, but uh, they were they, they were used to fill in the off season. Um, and so I was, you know, baseball was always my has always been my favorite sport. The basketball situation was a little bit different. All right, I want you to go back to your childhood, John. I want you to go back to when you were first old enough to go outside and play and play that magical game of baseball. You could not find 17 friends to play a game of baseball in your neighborhood. Nobody could. But you found a handful. And you guys, I want to know where you played, what it looked like, 
and the rules that you had to come up with just to get a game done. Okay. I don't remember ever having that many guys, uh, you know, even them close to that many guys. I would say, you know, 10 combined would have been a lot. Uh, we started out playing in our backyards uh, when we were very little and we played with a rubber ball and a, some kind of bat. I don't remember what. And then the, uh, the, the elementary school where we went was about a half an hour, half a mile at most walk. Uh, and there was a baseball field there. And uh, we played there constantly. The thing that I always marvel about is that we played Little League or its equivalent, but that was such a small percentage of the baseball we played. We played baseball from as soon as the weather was nice enough until the fall and played almost every night, uh, every day. And we might have played like 12 games in a little league season, and, and that was it. Um, the kinds of rules we played, you had to choose a field. You couldn't hit it to the right or left of second. Had to hit it to the right or left of second base. Um, sometimes we had so you know, we would play a game if we had three players. Um, you would have a, an infielder, a pitcher, and an outfielder, and the pitcher was also first base, and the pitcher's man was first base, just to get to play. That's how much you know we loved playing. Um, you know, made up the rules as we went along. Ghost runners. Oh, yes. Yeah. We, we didn't, what, what do we call them? I don't remember calling them ghost runners, but yes, we used runner imaginary runners. We did that certainly. Uh, imaginary runners. Rudy, did you use ghost runners? Uh, of course I used ghost runners. It was just me and my two brothers. So we had right. to have somebody populate right. the base path. So, yeah, that's yeah. oh, I love that so much. I love hearing about how people uh, got the evolution, uh, where the genesis of their baseball playing days and experiences. That's amazing. Right. So, John, you're an author and a historian. Um, you collect something, don't you? I, you know, I don't collect a lot of things. I mean, it's, it's interesting. Um, you know, I, uh, the one thing I guess I would I say I do collect is I collect juvenile literature, uh, sports books for not just not just sports, juvenile literature, but pretty much really old stuff. Um, when I was a kid, my father introduced me to books that he read when he was growing up in the 1920s. And the Rover, these names may not mean anything to you. The Rover Boys, the Boy Allies. Uh, Tom Swift um, were the kinds of books that, and we found them, we found old copies in bookstores and libraries, uh, and I read them then, and as an adult, I've collected them. The one that you might remember, the Chip Hilton series, um, which is more modern, that's post-World War II. Uh, Chip Hilton was a, he played all sports, uh, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, I have all but one of a full set of those. Um, so that's the one thing I guess I collect. Okay. It's important that you put out there, which one you need to fill your collection. <laughs> what is it? I don't, I tell you, I don't, I, I don't remember the name. Um, the series went on after I stopped reading them and I've only recently picked up the last couple and they're not for, the ones I have, the ones that I was given as a child growing up are first editions. And so something. The ones I filled in with aren't so. Um, you know. Yeah, this, this Chip Chip Hilton guy Chip is Hilton. Chip Hilton. 
pretty. I I just did a little search. Pretty. Oh my gosh! Touchdown pass. Right. Championship ball. Strike three. Right. Oh the wow. Books were written by Claire B, who was a legendary college basketball coach uh, at LIU. Um, it was one of the, he was one of the great coaches of early college basketball, and he wrote those books. Um, and uh, the one criticism I would have, a criticism that's often made of that kind of literature, is that there is no difference. There's so little difference between the hero and perfection. And Chip Hilton is such a great athlete that Claire B always has to come up with some other reason why he can't play in the crucial game. Because if he played in the crucial game, his team would win so easily. And so, you know, he breaks in touchdown pass. He breaks a leg. Uh, that's a, obviously a football book, championship ball. He's laid out for the basketball season with his broken leg. Uh, but then other thing, you know, he's accused of not being eligible. It's, oh, it's always something like that. Which I think uh, to go even further back, the Frank Merrowell books, there's what's referred to as a Merrowell finish. And Frank Merrowell, this is early, I guess, late 19th century. Again, such a great player. He couldn't ever play in the game. Something kept him out of it. And then he'd be brought in at the last moment to uh, save the game. So the same kind of <laughs> I Googled Chip Hilton. The first thing that came up was Chips, the TV series with Eric Estrada. <laughs> so I yeah. didn't, I, I'm not the best Googler. Yeah, I don't think that's the right chip. I no, it's not. But I was thinking about how good chips was. <laughs> you know, but uh, speaking of books, I just want to like this is uh, triggered in my mind. Barrel Roller likes to uh, promote the episode ahead of time, and so we'll put it out there on social media with a picture of the guest. And the picture that barrel roll, barrel roller chose for you is of of you uh, at work uh, putting uh, putting some taking score. This book looks humongous in this picture. Now, if it's not your typical scorekeeping modern day, is this something that was made like custom made? Like one of these pages looks to be like oh, a yeah. foot and a half long. Oh yeah, those are long yeah, pages. It, it is. It's. It's. It's a very cumbersome book to work with. It is. Um. It is a replica of Henry Chadwick's uh, 1868 scorebook. Uh, the original is in the New York Public Library, um, and I went over there. And uh, this was in the days where uh, they wouldn't like you let you take pictures of the book uh, of anything. So what I had to do was take blank paper, measure the original, and then try to. Not trace it, but recreate it in pencil on a blank sheet of paper, and then found somebody to uh, to print it for us. Uh, but it's his 1868 scorebook. Now, the, I guess you learn things over the years. The thing that I realize now is that he used this book as a reporter, so he needed all kinds of detail that a team in the course of a game doesn't need. Uh, and I started. We're this. We're on our fourth. I think copy of this book and close to running out of room. I've explored in the off season going back and recreating the kind of scorebooks that the teams actually used that are much simpler. But 
it, it didn't work out. I'm going to revisit it probably for the next season. But that, yeah, that book is, it's very cumbersome. Uh, and, you know, but the thing is, see, what Chadwick did, I'm sure, is that he had a table that he sat at and he worked on it that way. Well, I've been offered that on occasion, but I'm more involved in the game. And I'm, the past couple of years, I've become more involved in the management of the game. So, you know, I'm standing there paying attention to the game while I'm keeping score. So I can't or shouldn't, I don't think, be sitting at a table removed from the action. So. I love that. A wise man once said that it's on, things are only as special as you make it. And it's this attention to detail, which one, I personally just love because it brings just another level of authenticity to the club and the experience for people. And, and also it's just like, it's fascinating to look at and to know that these, these, now, is it's the New York Public Library, so anybody could go in and say they wanted to see the Spalding Collection and, and be able to see this? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, no, Chad, and they have a number of Chadwick scorebooks. Some of his early Ch- his scorebooks from the 18, late 1850s are, you know, there's not, it's just, a, it's, it's just like a grid of lines. I mean, there's nothing elaborate to it, but he clearly uh, worked on it and, uh, you know, put this together. And it has, it has the equivalent of a copyright at the bottom of it, but... It, those copyrights don't apply today. Yeah. We were able to do that. Other teams have expressed an interest in it. Um, but, you know, it's the way, we, the way we've done it, a book cost about $200. Now, yeah. that covers three to four seasons, so it's probably worth it. Um, but I'd really like to find a model of something that's more team-oriented. And I've offered uh, that if when we do that, then we'd, We'd make it available to other teams at cost. We're happy to do that. But we, I frequently get at a game, somebody will come up to me and ask to see the scorebook. Um, you know, they had a young fan who, uh, for a couple of years, would come to one game a year and you know want to stand with me and see what I was doing, and then I'd let him keep score for an inning or two and that kind of thing. Oh, that's fantastic! Is it safe to say whenever there's a discrepancy during a match? So you're the man everybody goes to. <laughs> you know what we do, what I try to do to avoid that is that <laughs> every half inning, I say how many runs each team got and we try to give the score. Um, you know, when I first started doing it, I really worried about that. I thought because the, there's no scoreboard as a rule um, and, and the umpires as a rule don't want to keep score. Um, so... But it, it works, you know, it's, it's an honor system and it's really something that, you know, it, it's not uncommon for me for another team to shout to me, how many did you get that inning? And it's never, I, I can only think of one or two times where there was a discrepancy and then we stopped the game and sent, sat down and looked at it and we found the discrepancy. I'm trying to nail down there's, what you're. There's record. no official score here, so you know it's not like uh, you know like in a basketball game. There's an official score who write like it or not, he or she is right. Yeah. I'm trying to nail down what your reputation is over on the East Coast when a rule is being ignored or broken, when something has gone wrong, and nobody notices it. How quick are you to speak up? I think I'm very quick to speak of. I think the goal <laughs> is historical accuracy. Yeah. And 
we try, I try, and I think our team tries, and then the other teams try, we try to get it right. And I have seen three, I can remember a, time, a game a year ago where a player on the other team split into home plate, was tagged out, and the ball came loose. And under the rules at the time, that's still an out. You don't have to keep possession of the ball. The captain, and it, 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 on a split second, the captain of the other team and I both said, He's out. You know, you, you're not going to last. I don't think you're going to last long in this work if you, um, you know, if you don't do that. I mean, I think you really have to work for the integrity of the game and uh, get it right and do the historical accuracy. And if you, you know, if if you can't agree or whatever, uh, you you do some research on it. You know, find your find some sources for it. Wow. John, who's your favorite baseball player of all time? Pee Wee Reese. Why? <laughs> Why? That's I'm, I'm because he was a Brooklyn Dodger and I was and he was a shortstop and I was a shortstop in my short-lived baseball career. Okay. Okay. Uh, and Glory Wills, second favorite player. And uh, is Kirk Gibson your third favorite player? <laughs> no. Uh, <laughs> I don't have. I don't. I have nothing against Kirk Gibson. As you shouldn't. <laughs> Uh, John, you mentioned earlier, I think it was off before we started recording. Uh, you're familiar, uh, you were familiar with Paul Salomon and you referred yes. to him as the father of vintage baseball in New Jersey. Could you speak on that for a couple minutes? Sure. Yeah. Paul is without a doubt. I think the founder of the late Paul Salomon, let us say, uh, was the founder of vintage baseball in New Jersey. He formed the Elizabeth Resolutes who are in their 24th year next year, be their 25th. Um, anniversary. Um, and then uh, Brad Shaw, who founded the Nishanik, he played for the, Re he uh, told me that he played for the Resolutes for, I guess it was one year, so he could learn how to do it and got Flemington started. And there were the two senior clubs in New Jersey. So, you know, Paul got one started and he got another one started, he helped get it, Nishanik started. I know he's helped um, so the other clubs. Uh, it was always, uh, always willing to help new clubs get started. We met, you know, he's, he's missed. There's no question of that. You know, Paul was very intense. I mean, I'm just be honest about that. I mean, he was a very intense player and uh, had very strong feelings about how the game was supposed to be played. Um, but, uh, you know, he uh, was a pathfinder in this state. Yeah, if you go back in the archives of the Roller of the Barrel Vintage Baseball Podcast, you will see that, I believe it's in season two, very early, I'm not sure, uh, that interview I did with Paul Salomone. And uh, the interview I took that took place after we, after we stopped recording lasted even longer than the episode. And <laughs> I could just kick myself for not continuing to record. We had the greatest baseball discussion maybe the best baseball discussion I've ever been a part of for an hour okay. and a half after that. And, uh, I don't have it. I'm so disappointed in myself. Hey, Hey, you saved it in this hard drive. That's what's mad. That's, that's what matters. It's, and it's funny that you said that, uh, Bradshaw picked up, uh, you know, kind of was a resolute and then picked up that thing because, uh, <laughs> I remember, I remember my very first time, playing against Brad 
in um, Smithtown uh, with right. the Gotham. Right. And, like, feeling like I angered him strictly for hitting the fair foul. Oh, and, here we go. And, yeah, I know. I, this is for you as well, Barrel Roller. Yes, Barrel Roller has rolled his eyes so far back in, in, in his head that he has passed out. But I hit a fair foul that landed in some weeds about 45 feet away from home plate, and they couldn't find it, and I just kept running. And Brad was so angry. And then I was like, man, I have made this gentleman very mad. And But since, but once you got to know him, like Paul, very, very kind, you know, caring and, and, and really looking to take the whole community uh, with right. them. You know, very a rising so. tide situation. Very much so. I thought you were going to say they found the ball in a stroller because it hit off some child's forehead. Uh, no, there, that's unfortunately, the child I was aiming for was further down the baseline. <laughs> <laughs> John, you mentioned how Flemington uh, is a, a travel-only club. Can you tell us some of your favorite locations to go visit? Sure. Um, well, of course, one of them is uh, the Gettysburg uh, 19th Century Baseball Festival. We've been at we we're a charter uh, team in that event, and uh, that's uh, to me that's the highlight of our year. Um, places in New Jersey, uh, Newbridge Landing in Bergen County, uh, the Howell Living History Farm in Lambertville. I'm going to get in trouble here because I'm going to forget somebody. Um, Nobody gets in trouble on this show ever. Nobody. Yeah, right. Yeah, I've heard, I've heard that one before too. Um, <laughs> Greenwood Manor State Park. Uh, another place we play every year. Um, just yesterday, we played at the uh, Smithville Historic Park uh, in East East Ampton, New Jersey, which uh, will become a new favorite. We had a good time there. Um, we've also played in the um, the event in uh, uh, near Rochester, New York, at Genesee Country Village. That's a beautiful venue, great place to play. Um, we've played at the uh, uh, it's a Cavendish racetrack in Maine. Um, great place to play. That event apparently is not going to happen anymore. Um, I, I like playing at Old Bethpage. Um, unfortunately, our players don't like the trip, so we don't go there anymore. Um, I've enjoyed playing in Smithtown as well. Um, so. Wow. Sounds like the Nishanics are a little entitled. They don't want to go to Old Beth Page. Huh. <laughs> well, you know, the thing I've learned about, <laughs> I, what I've learned about vintage baseball players, remember, we have to remember about these guys and girls in some cases, is that, you know, they're volunteers. They're not getting paid for this. And, you know, they vote with their feet. And I've learned to listen to, you know, we don't want to go. They don't say it explicitly. But, you know, when you go four or five times in a row and you can't feel the team at a venue, uh, you learn. You have to learn from that. And so, yeah. You know, we don't travel out as much as we used to uh, outside of New Jersey, and I, you know, it's just the way it is. And I think that's a fantastic lesson for all vintage baseball clubs to like take take stock, recognize. Like, if you can't put together a full club for an event, you know, yeah. maybe take a step back, take that yeah. off of your schedule. Yeah. Figure out another way to do it. Exactly. Yeah. 
and stop scheduling single matches. Are we are we ranting right now? Can we can we start rant? No. Well, no. No. Okay, no, I'm sorry. Listen, I take the, that back. Then barrel sorry. roller. <laughs> the, the the difference between Midwest and East Coast is the pace of play, and that is directly related to the rules. It's because they swing, and, right? It's because they swing on the well, East Coast, right? Well, there there's there there are there are balls and strikes called. There is constant movement. It's 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 a different. They can get two nine inning games in in the span of a one inning game here in the Midwest. Oh, they don't play wheelhouse ball. Oh, waiting for the yeah. ball in the wheelhouse. Mm. Mm. I love the East Coast. Yeah. Okay. We won't we won't <laughs> start the rant. Hey, John. Uh, thanks for joining us. But before we get you out of here, there's a little thing I like to do called giving you the old pepper. It's a bunch of quick questions with quick answers meant to get to know you a little bit better. Here we go. Do you prefer a napkin or a moist towelette? Napkin. What was your first car? A um, Rambler American. What's your favorite movie of all time? Field of Dreams. Predictable. Do you have a hidden talent? You do. No. No. You do. You laughed. What is it? If I if I did and I admitted it, then it wouldn't be hidden any longer. That's what a cop out. You are an author. You're good at this. What is your favorite kind of wood? Jeez. Elm. Why are you asking me? I asked you. Elm. <laughs> what is your favorite adult beverage? Seven Up. <laughs> what was the first concert you ever went to? Loving Spoonful. <laughs> oh my God. Uh, Let me see some slack here. I'm 76 years old. No, I love oh, it. That's all right. We've heard of it. We're not young. <laughs> I snuck in the back door of the Rutgers gym because I had a key as a basketball manager. Wait a second. Why are we just now hearing this story? <laughs> Were you backstage? No, no, no. Did you take a girl with you? No, unfortunately, the I did it with the the late Lou Getz, who was a Rutgers basketball player and ultimately married Dick Groach's daughter. I know that name too. See, I'm, I thought you would. Uh, who's the most famous person you've talked to? And I ask that, and I know that Carl Erskine had <laughs> Mr. Erskine. You talked to a couple of times. Is there somebody more famous you've talked to than him? I, I would say Robert Caro. Who? The president of Lyndon Johnson and Robert Moses. Oh. Uh, what was the name of the first girl you ever kissed? You, you can do first Michelle, name. I'm just blanking the, out. Just the first name. No, don't. The, the first date, the answer is none. Um, if my wife is listening to this, I'm going to get a lot of questions later. <laughs> Michelle. What is your wife's best quality? That's how we 
That's how we fix this, John. My wife's best quality, unconditional love. Oh, good save. He's Kick good. save and a butte, John. He's so good. <laughs> hey, John. I've been well-trained. I've been married over 48 years. That's a, that's a lot of yes, dears, John. <laughs> yeah, tell me about it. <laughs> Uh, John, thanks so much for uh, being on the show. Rudy, make sure you stay on after we let John go. And uh, we appreciate your time, your knowledge. Uh, you have so much to give to people. I hope they're not intimidated to come and talk to you during games because of the size of your scorebook. <laughs> Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. I really enjoyed it. And I will sign off. Rudy? John, thank you so much. You have a great season, okay? Okay, you too. Thank you. Right, bye-bye. And there you have it. Hey, uh, all you kids out there, don't forget, if you want a T-shirt of the Roller Alta Barrel, we're not shoving this stuff down your throat. There's a pinned post at the top of the Facebook group. You Just follow the instructions there. There's different, a few different designs and a few different colors and no big deal, whatever. Uh, what else? We got the Akron Cup coming up in July. And Rudy won't be able to talk to anybody until September because of all of the matches we're going to have video of that day. <laughs> you poor oh man. Gosh. But I want everybody to realize before they get excited when one of us is in attendance, these, these supremely and well done videos put together by Rudy and with some help for me, they don't happen if there's only one of us in attendance. Okay. So don't get too excited. Like I'm going to the Rocky point, uh, festival later. These aren't happening. It's podcast only. Sorry. And yeah, I look, it's a labor of love. I'm so excited as of right now, match number two, the massacre of, uh, the Columbus Capitals, uh, uh, courtesy of the Canton corn shockers is available on the YouTube. Um, oh, no kidding. It, 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 it went live uh, now, so you can find that. Check that out. You mean the um, newest massacre of the Columbus Capitals from the Canton yeah. Corn Oh, yeah. yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. When's the last time you beat Ken? Uh Two years ago. Oh. Wait, 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 no, not two years ago. Well, because we didn't get 2020, so three years ago. Where was that at? Wait, four years ago because we didn't get 2020. Uh, that was at uh, the this little this little rinky dink event called the Michigan Vintage Baseball Festival. Tell me more. <laughs> yeah, it's just you know, I'll give it's you got a... legs, but I don't think it's gonna go anywhere. <laughs> but you liked it, right? I'll give you 15 minutes to knock that off. I loved it. So much. <laughs> I loved how much you loved it too. By the way. Sometimes I think I only put it on just to get you excited about Shut up. you whatever. You got the you got the community excited. You got the most clubs ever at a vintage baseball event. Ever. Uh yeah, I know. Uh I don't know if you've heard, Rudy, but I'm quite delightful. <laughs> I mean, let's face it, people, I people like you. <laughs> and the people You that, know what? And there's people that don't like me. Speaking of delightful people, I'm not going to let this go by. John, delightful. Like, 
That's too much information like we, for one man to have in that head, and we didn't even tap into it. We we scratched the surface. He's amazing, and and like I listen. If you're listening to this, go to the Facebook page, check out the picture, so you can see this massive scorebook that this man is working with. And I love the commitment and attention to detail. We need more of that. He spent two hundred dollars on a scorebook. We got teams out here running around in t-shirts. You sons of bitches. All right. Rudy, I love you. Uh, you are. Love you more. As I said earlier in this episode, you definitely are the Shangri-La of the Lalas. You are the piece of resistance. I'll talk to you later. I love you, buddy. Recording stopped. Move over, Rose. Move over. <laughs>